Romans 11, and we'll begin reading at verse 11 through verse 15. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would plant your word deep within us, that we would have understanding and application of it to us by your Spirit, that we would demonstrate our love for you by obeying your commandments. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we work through Romans 11, I think it should be said that none of God's people should grow despondent about the future of God's kingdom. Nations may rise and fall, kingdoms may come and go, but Christ himself has promised to build his church, his kingdom, and he has said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The defense mechanisms of the enemy, Satan, will not prevail against the advancement of Christ's kingdom in this world. And yet at the same time, I wonder how many Christians in the church today have forgotten some of these promises of our Lord in His Word or simply are ignorant of them. And such a gloomy and I could say a pessimistic outlook on the future of God's kingdom, His church in this life and world, it hasn't always been this way. Uh, You can look back, you can turn back the pages of time and, and read in the commentaries, read in the history books and And I'll just give a little anecdote this morning. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of Princeton Seminary. If you've heard of Princeton, maybe you've heard of Charles Hodge, who was the president of Princeton Seminary in the 1800s. And while he was president and while he taught theology there, of course, his children grew up in his midst, in the midst of that community. And uh, one of his children, A.A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge, followed in his footsteps and became professor of theology as well of Princeton Seminary. But maybe you don't know this, when A.A. Hodge was 10 years old, he and his sister, uh, Mary, uh, they caught wind that a seminary student was about to set sail across the ocean and become a foreign missionary in a foreign land, a land of pagans. And so he and his sister, little A.A. Hodge and his sister Mary, they wrote a letter so that it would be sent with this seminary student. And here's what they wrote. Dear heathen, the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. 
And if this is promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it to come sooner by reading the Bible and attending the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols? Take Christianity into your temples. And soon there will be not a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will not want a missionary. My sister and myself have, by small self-denials, procured two dollars, which are enclosed in this letter to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you, signed A.A. Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, friends of the heathen. And so you can see that Charles Hodge, their father, had taught them of these wonderful promises concerning the nations, that is, the Gentiles, and the success of the gospel, the advancement of it, and of Christ's kingdom in this world. That there was an expectation in that family that the gospel would be successful. And so that is reflected in the life of his children. But what are we to make of national Israel? If we were to survey the scriptures, I think think we would see, I think I would be able to to help you see, Lord willing, that there is this glorious future, that we should have an expectation of an influx of the Gentiles into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we think about that, what about national or ethnic Israel? So that's what Paul's dealing with here in our chapter. In fact, as you know, he's been dealing with this since chapter 9 and will continue to wrap it up at the end of chapter 11. The scriptures have many promises concerning the Gentiles, but what you might not know is they also have some promises for ethnic or national Israel's future. This morning, I think we're going to see that Israel's rejection is not complete, nor is it final. And when I say their rejection, I'm talking about their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in turn resulted in God's rejection of them as a nation. We've looked at that as we've worked through these passages in Romans. I think we're going to see that there is a time coming when ethnic Israel, that is, Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh as he puts it, when they will receive and accept Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And some of you might sit there and say, really? I thought we've seen that the promises made to Israel were to spiritual Israel. Yes, we've seen that. Paul makes that point in chapter 9, and he's talking about the elect within national Israel, that ultimately those promises were made to them, they're fulfilled in them. But what I'm saying is that there's coming a time when the nation of Israel, I believe, it will be converted to Christ. And so at that time, the majority of the people of ethnic and national Israel will also be the elect who come in to the church and kingdom of Jesus Christ through gospel preaching. Maybe some have grown up in other circles, non-reformed circles, and you're thinking, well, this sounds like dispensationalism. Well, that's not what I'm saying. I grew up in those circles. 
that teaches or has taught in the past, it has changed somewhat, but they have taught in the past that as far as Israel's future is concerned, the temple will one day be rebuilt, sacrifices will be made again in that temple, and that's going to consist of Israel's future. And we say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a future conversion of Israelites, those of the nation of Israel, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on this passage, James Montgomery Boyce, he lamented that so many modern Reformed theologians reject the idea of a future blessing for Israel. Now, I don't hold the same millennial position as he did. He was a historical premillennialist, if you desire to know. That's not me. Um, okay, I would say I'm postmillennial, in case you're wondering that. But the point is, even he lamented that so many modern Reformed men did not see uh, that Israel had this glorious future promised to them in Scripture. And so let's see how Paul answers this question. The one, if you have your Bible there, it's in verse 11. He, he poses this question. I say then, have they stumbled? They, meaning national, ethnic, the physical Israelites. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Let's see how Paul answers that this morning. So there's basically two things I'm going to conclude from this passage. And the first one you can see in the bulletin, in the outline. The first is that national or ethnic Israel will be restored. Now again, it may not be in the way that you would have thought. When I say they're going to be restored, that means I mean in favor with God through Jesus Christ, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in these verses here in 11 and 12, we can see, I think, at least three truths that Paul posits for us. They're inspired, by the way. First of all, Paul notes that their stumbling was not final. Uh, we've seen this again and again. Um, it is not final. We've already said that it's not complete, meaning that when Christ came, it wasn't as though that every single Israelite on the planet at that time rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But as a whole, they did. Remember, we talked about the remnant. And there are those within national Israel who did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. There is a spiritual, true Israel within the nation of Israel. Paul points to himself a little later, remember, and says, look, I too am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. So not all the Israelites have rejected the Lord Jesus. It just is the case then, as it is today, that most of the Israelites did and have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that being said, there were those who received him, the apostles. The early Christians were converts from Judaism to the Lord Jesus Christ. So their stumbling is not final. It is not complete. It is not thorough. And as we see in our text this morning, it is not final, meaning it is not fixed. It is not going to remain this way forever. There's the question, verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? 
Certainly not. He says, have they stumbled that they should fall? May it never be. If you look at verse 12, he says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. There's that word fullness. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, if you look down at verse 26, a little later, I hope we'll make it there. He says, and so all, actually, I'm sorry, verse 25 he says, for in verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so there, I think what he is talking about is the fullness of the Gentiles coming into the church, coming into the kingdom of Christ, that is, the, the remaining number of the elect that are on the earth at that time, they come into the church of Jesus Christ. So when you go back to verse 12, and he talks about how much more their fullness, he's talking about an influx of Israelites coming into the church of Jesus Christ. Their fullness, the Israelites' fullness, those who are elect at that time, they will come into the church of Christ. And then if you look down as well in verse 15, he talks about their acceptance. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What does it mean to be accepted? How is one accepted by God? Ephesians 1 tells us in verse 6 that we are accepted by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus who has made us what? Accepted in the Beloved. And so even though they have fallen, even though they have failed, verse 12, there will be their fullness, verse 12, and they will be accepted by God, verse 15. And so their stumbling is not final. There will be a time where it will be turned around. And as we'll see, that will be supernaturally by God himself. Also, their stumbling had a purpose. Paul notes that. If you look in verse 11, certainly not, but, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So in one sense, while we do not glorify sin, we don't rejoice in sin, we do see that God used Israel's rejection of the Messiah to then turn to the Gentiles. And so salvation has come to us today. And so that's part of the purpose of their stumbling. And then there's another principle in these two verses, 11 and 12, and that is that the Gentiles coming to Christ will eventually lead the Israelites to Christ and thus bring further blessing to all nations of the world. I'll say that again. The Gentiles coming to Christ will eventually lead the Israelites to Christ, and thus bring further blessing to the nations of the world. That's there as well in verse 11. 
but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He says to provoke them, the Israelites, to jealousy, to provoke the Israelites to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In other words, as one put it, the conversion of the Gentiles is designed to bring about the restoration of the Jewish people. We could say that the conversion of the Gentiles is a means of exciting the Jews to seek salvation in the gospel of Christ. Not all jealousy is bad. In fact, God is a jealous God. Not all coveting is bad. Not all lusting is bad. The flesh lust against the spirit. The spirit lust against the flesh. There's desire. And so the point is that the, and the idea is that the Israelites one day will begin to see all of the blessings that the Gentiles have received because they have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps have come to the Savior because of this. You've seen someone, a fellow uh, worker, a co-worker, a neighbor, a family member, someone you know has come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a Christian. Their life is established. It seems fixed and trials come and they, they suffer, yes, but they suffer well. They have faith. They have hope. They have joy, and you want to know, where do you get all of these things? I mean, life is terrible. Look at the world in which we live. And they say, well, it's not going to stay this way. In fact, let me tell you about someone who came to change it all. And so you come to Christ in some form or fashion that way. I know this isn't the only way, only reason I came to Christ, but I had an uncle growing up. He's still alive. Thank you, Lord. I love him. But I, I remember as a child, looking at his home, looking at the way he treated his son, looking at the way he treated his wife, looking at the way he treated me and other Christians, I thought, wow, I want to be like him. And it's because he was a Christian, a mature Christian man. And so that's the idea. And so as we stop and think about this, what is Paul saying? He is saying that there's coming a time when the Israelites, those of national, ethnic Israel, will see the Gentile church and desire what they have because of what they have in Christ. And so today we ought to ask ourselves the question, you know, are our lives provoking anyone to come to Christ? Do men and women and children, our neighbors, our co-workers, with whomever we come into contact, uh, do those people look at our lives and say, I, I want some of that. In other words, are we spending time in communion with God through prayer, the word, other Christians, the means of grace, so that the fruit of the Spirit are manifested in our lives? Just think about Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we passionate about truth? Not are we jerks about the truth, but are we passionate about the truth? Do we want to know what the truth is? The truth set, shall set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I, I wonder today with this whole idea of the, the modern contemporary church movement, 
if this whole idea of assimilation has not gone too far. I mean, I, I will say that it has. But the idea is in order to win the world, you have to become like the world. You have to speak their language. You have to look like them. You have to act like them and get down on their level. And you know what? You already have something in common with the world. You are made in God's image. And in fact, Paul will go on to say, do not be conformed to this world. But it happens. And, you know, I understand we, we don't need to go out and, and just recite Lewis Burkhoff's theology to unbelievers and say, hey, did you get that? Do you understand? That's what it means to be a Christian. Or quote the catechism. Hey, uh, this is my evangelism. No, we need to speak plainly in terms that men understand. But the point is, we've become, the church has become so much like the world in some senses that the world sees it and says, I've already got this. In fact, we do it better than you. Okay, here's an example. When I was at my first pastorate in South Carolina, there was a church in South Carolina, a mega church, and uh, they didn't have Reformed Calvinistic theology, biblical theology. So, you know, you had to convince people, and that's what underlines the whole modern contemporary church movement. And so what did he do? Well, he had to up one-up himself every week. So finally, one Sunday, he comes out to music, rock and roll. And guess what song it is? This is in a worship service from a pastor. Well, the song was Highway to Hell by ACDC. What? I mean, that right there, that is the illustration. And I hope that man has repented of that since. I know he's been through a lot. And so the point is, do our lives provoke any? One, to jealousy. And the question as the church is, do our lives provoke the Jewish people, the national Israelites, to a jealousy that says, I want what you have? You see, the Jewish people as a whole, Paul will say this, the Bible's clear about it, they have become so blind to so many of the truths of Scripture. Think about Isaiah 53. Think about their concept of the Messiah. You know, they anticipated the Messiah. Well, guess what? He came, Jesus of Nazareth, and what did they do? They expected a political uh, rival to come with him and to deliver them politically in that sense and overthrow the government and all of that. Well, that is not what the Bible promised in the Old Testament, but that's what they thought it promised. And so he didn't. In fact, when they, they saw that he came and he started talking about sin and all of this, what did they They killed him. They crucified him. And so then they began looking for other messiahs, and some would come and say, I'm the messiah. Well, he failed, and so they moved to the next thing. And eventually, um, within Judaism and the Jewish concept of messiah today, it is very popular to have a political idea of the messiah, that the messiah is no longer a person, but it is government personified. It's, it may be hard for you to wrap your mind around it, but that's the way it is. And so if you read Isaiah 53 to a Jewish person, that's a great way uh, to evangelize them and to ask them questions. Well, is this a person or is this the government? I mean, come on. He was rejected by men. Men did not esteem him. He went like a lamb unto the slaughter. He died. He went to the grave. But, oh, he was not only humbled, he was exalted. And he's reigning. And he's going to perform, perform the work of the Lord. And you just go on. Well, if you look in in the uh, passage before us, in verse 25, about halfway through it, Paul says that blindness in part, see, it's not 
complete that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so they're blind until the Gentiles come in, and we'll talk about that later. And so at some point, the fact that the Gentiles are enjoying the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that will provoke the Jewish people to explore the gospel of Christ, and I believe to receive Christ himself as he is offered in that gospel. Now, Paul gives an argument for this, uh, for this, this um, teaching here about the future of Israel. If you look in verse 12, he says, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Does it sound like he's reasoning there, using logic? If this is the case, if this is the case, how much more will this be the case? He is using an argument, an argument that is an inference based on a previously established argument. A fortiori is the Latin name of this argument. It goes something like this. You, you, you establish one argument, one proposition, one statement, and from that you can say since that is the case, this necessarily will follow. So we could say, um, we can make one statement, make our case, and say Jane died on February 1st. We could prove that Jane died on February 1st. And then from that, we can make another argument and say, since Jane died on February 1st, she did not murder Sally on February 9th. So that's what Paul is doing here. It goes something like this. If there is something negative about Israel that can bring such blessing to the world or the Gentiles, how much more will something positive about Israel bring to the world or the Gentiles? We referred to Hodge earlier. He said this, Charles Hodge, If the rejection of the Jews has been the occasion of so much good to the world, the gospel going out into the world, how much more may be expected from their restoration? And so Paul says, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Now, a question to ask is, well, is this taught anywhere else in the Bible? We must compare Scripture with Scripture. Well, when it comes to the Gentiles, the Old Testament is full of all of these promises and blessings. I'll just mention a few for your uh, recording and listening this morning. There is the Abrahamic covenant. God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3. And he says to Abraham, And you, the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And of course, Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 9, Those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so you cannot claim the blessing of Abraham upon yourself unless you're like Abraham and have faith in the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 3. And so 
in you, Abraham, that is, through you, the families, all families of the earth shall be blessed. In Psalm 2, there's that, that, we need to read Psalm 2 every day right now, don't we? Who's in charge? Who laughs at the nations, at the kings of the earth, taking uh, uh, this, this conspiracy, conspiring against the Lord and His anointed? Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. But the Father promises the Son there, the nations, as His inheritance. In verse 8 of Psalm 2, it says, He promises the nations as His inheritance and the ends of the earth for His possession. The nations are the Gentiles. In Psalm 22 and verse 27, about the Messiah and His rule, His reign, which is right now, by the way, it says this, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It takes faith to believe the word of God. Psalm 72 verse 11, Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. To serve is to worship the Messiah. And as we've already seen in weeks past, in, in Acts chapter 13, we see there that the Gentiles are interested in Paul's and Barnabas's uh, teaching and preaching of the gospel. The Jews become jealous, not in the sense of Romans 11, but in a bad way. And so Paul says, look, I'm paraphrasing, if you're, if you're not going to listen, guess what? It's time to turn to the Gentiles. And so that's what they do. The gospel goes out into the Gentiles. And so the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant begins to be fulfilled and also the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what about Israel, the nation of Israel's future? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, this is what the Bible says there. This is talking about the government of the Son, the Lord Jesus. You know this passage if you've heard or read the Bible for some time. The people who walked, this is Isaiah 9 two. the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. That's talking about the future of the nation of Israel. They have multiplied. And just in case you're not convinced of that, hopefully this might help. Isaiah chapter 9, or rather 19. Isaiah 19, I won't spend much time here. I hope to do that a little later. But this is, first of all, a prophecy against Egypt. And then a little later... He begins to talk about the future glory of the reign of the Messiah. This is all under the reign of the Messiah. And these wonderful promises, they begin in verse 16. There's five of them. And they begin with the phrase, in that day. In that day, Egypt. Verse 18, in that day, five cities. Verse 19, in that day. Verse 23, in that, in that day. Verse 24, in that day. But if you look down at verse 23... It says, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian 
will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve, that is, worship with the Assyrians. Verse 24, and that day Israel will be one of the three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. And so my point in mentioning this is that I believe this is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled, a time, a day in which Israel, as well as the Gentile nations, come together and worship and serve the Messiah together. I think Paul is getting to that point in Romans chapter 11. And so, in other words, God is not done with Israel, the nation of Israel. And I do not accept, I reject completely the dispensational system where there is a temple rebuilt in Israel. And even if Christians fund it and there is something of a temple rebuilt, I'm not going to bat an eye at it. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I don't think that's what's promised. There is the promise of a rebuilt temple, but guess what? Ephesians 2 makes it clear. 1 Peter 2 makes it clear. That's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual temple. And just since I'm talking about it, if you go back and read Ezekiel's prophecy of this colossal temple, if we were to build that according to the specs in that prophecy, that temple would extend out into the sea. The point is, it will grow, this temple, this spiritual temple, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ under his future reign, which is now today. And so God is not done with national Israel. Paul's brethren according to the flesh. Well, second this morning and last, we see here that in Romans 11, I think Paul is saying that Israel's restoration will be a glorious restoration. And he uses this phrase, life from the dead, there in verse 15. What will their acceptance be? They're coming in to the church of Jesus Christ. What will that be but life from the dead? Now, just let me say that the nation of Israel needs life. They need spiritual life. That they have died in a sense and they died when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prophesied in Matthew 21, they would reject him. You know, Jesus is metaphorically, symbolically, at the end of his ministry, going into the temple, cleansing the temple, showing what he's going to do, cleansing the temple. And as he moves to and fro, well, there's a fig tree. It doesn't produce fruit, so he curses it. Matthew 21 and verse 19, he says, Let no fruit grow in you ever again. And so he means that the, the fig tree will be cursed, and the fig tree represents Israel that same chapter in Matthew 21, there's the parable of the two sons. And uh, I'll just read it to you so I don't misquote it. But in that parable, Jesus talks about one son who a little reluctantly serves his father. The other one does not serve his father. And he says, which one uh, will be accepted? And they said, the first, the one who served him. And then Jesus says to them, this is verse 31 of Matthew 21, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Gentiles, unbelievers, 
the outcast of society. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Then he tells the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Here in Matthew 21. And of course, there's more rejection. He talks about how there was a landowner. He planted a vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. You can go to Isaiah 5. It talks about that there as well. But there's not, no fruit. And uh, he sends his, his servants. And then finally, he sends his son. Verse 37, then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But what do they do? They kill the son. And then verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers, they ask, Jesus asked. They said to Jesus, he will destroy those wicked and miserable men and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. And then Jesus quotes the psalm, I think it's Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 43, Jesus is speaking to the unbelieving leaders of Israel. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whomever... Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus prophesied that the kingdom would be taken from Israel, the nation of Israel, and giving to another nation, producing the fruits thereof, the Gentiles. And so that's what happened. And by the way, just so the Israelites would get the message, you would hope what happened to them in AD 70. The Romans surrounded Jerusalem. Titus led them in, and they leveled the city, destroying the temple so that the Jews could no longer offer animal sacrifices, and their worship was put away. And so in that sense, they died. In that sense, they were leveled. And so Paul will go on in our text to say that they would receive life from the dead. Well, in our text here, you can see um, Paul's motive, his partial motive for his ministry to the Gentiles, based on what we've seen. Verse 13, I, I speak to you as Gentiles, as the apostle of the Gentiles. He magnifies his ministry. He delights in his ministry. He serves God with all of his heart in his ministry to the Gentiles. In verse 14, if by any means I provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul did not expect this conversion in his day of national Israel to Christ. But he did say, I magnify, I serve with all my might that God has given me. I, I serve and I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why? So that I might provoke some of my brethren to come to Christ. Based on what he's already said. Now that doesn't mean that Gentiles are any less of people than Jewish people. Paul is telling us, you know, like he said earlier, his desire is that his brethren be saved. We want our family members to be saved. And that was his desire. And you see that here. And that is his argument for his ministry. And then he says in verse 15, 
For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Basically, this meaning, life from the dead, can be boiled down to three possibilities. And so what, what are those possibilities? Some say it's just figurative, that Paul means he refers to a joyful and desirable event. Some say this refers to the resurrection at the last day. Even though he says life from the dead, I don't think he's talking about the last day bodily resurrection. He could have used the word he used everywhere else in Scripture for that, the Anastasia, the resurrection of the body. He doesn't use that term here, and uh, he never uses this phrase, in fact, elsewhere in Scripture to refer to the bodily resurrection. So it could be figurative. It could, some say, refer to the resurrection at the last day. I don't believe that. And it could be the spiritual resurrection or regeneration of national Israel. You know, Paul says to Gentiles in Ephesians 2, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. We were all, before we came to Christ, we were all spiritual corpses, unresponsive to the things of God, dead in our sins and trespasses, but He made us alive in Christ, gave us faith, gave us repentance so that we could come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we say, all glory goes to God even in our salvation, especially, we might say, in our salvation. And so when Paul here talks about life from the dead, Jesus, of course, Himself, He is the resurrection and life. So I think maybe it's one and three, if you just, you know, take your pick there. It, it is figurative, figurative, but it's also life from the dead, spiritual life from being spiritually dead. It does include that. It has to. And so, as we move our way through this passage, nearing the middle and end of chapter 11, then, then what do these uh, four verses or so mean to us today? First of all, we need to see that there will one day be a general or national conversion of the Jewish people. Their fullness will come in. They will receive life from the dead. And as we think about this and what Paul argues here, second, as Hodge put it, the web of providence is wonderfully Woven. That is to say that God can and God does bring good from all things for the blessing of His people. Romans 8, 28, right? He causes all things to work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. And that includes the rejection of Jesus Christ at His first coming. That includes the rejection of Israel for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ at His first coming. The gospel went to the Gentiles, so we're reminded of that principle as well. Third, we ought to see here that Gentile Christians, thats I think that's everyone in here, that Gentile Christians ought not to disregard, gloss over, or feel threatened by a future conversion of ethnic Israel. 
Maybe it's new to you and you wonder, is this true? Well, let me just tell you that before dispensationalism, many Christian theologians held this view. In fact, I think it is the view of our larger catechism, as we'll confess later in the service. And if this is true, and it is, if there's a future for Israel, if God put Israel as the apple of his eyes, a nation, of course, we are that as his spiritual people. But if this future is true concerning Israel, it's true, isn't it, that there's no room for anti-Semitism in the Christian world view. And unfortunately, even some of the authors that, that we cherish, the Reformation, said some pretty ugly things. Luther is one of them. And what does that teach us? Don't put your trust in men. 1 Corinthians 11, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of so-and-so. No, all men have their faults and their sins, and let us all remember that. Also, it means that if we have the opportunity, we should befriend and evangelize Jewish people and not pay for them to rebuild some temple in Israel. Jesus, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Repeatedly, he told the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they were to trust in him. Not the sacrifices, not their circumcision, not their traditions, no, him. If we love Jewish people, we tell Jewish people about the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And then last, God is almighty and he is awesome. He is the only one that can bring life from the dead. Whether it's a whole nation or it's you or it's me. Without Christ, we are hopeless and helpless and dead in our sins and trespasses. But through Him, we have life and we have life eternal. And as the Valley of Dry Bones shows us, it comes through the preaching of the gospel. And as Jesus approached Lazarus, He called him from the dead out of His, his tomb there. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will have life. Even though you die, you shall live. Amen. Let's pray.